This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Julia Cameron. Julia Cameron is an award-winning writer and director. She has created feature films, movies of the week and episodic television, six full-length plays, and hundreds of articles and stories for national publications ranging from Rolling Stone to Vogue to the New York Times. She's the author of the national best-selling book, The Artist's Way. With Sounds True, Julia has released Reflections on the Artist's Way, a teaching program on many of the key themes introduced in the Artist's Way, and also along with writer Natalie Goldberg, a program called The Writing Life, filled with ideas and inspiration for anyone who wants to write. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Julia and I spoke about how to break through creative blocks, the sensor and how her relationship with her own sensor has changed throughout the course of her life. We also talked about why creativity requires that we take risks, and some big recent risks that Julia has taken in her own life. Here's my conversation with Julia Cameron. Julia, from the outside, at least, it looks as though you've dedicated your life to both being a creative force and to liberating the creative force in other people. And I'm curious to know, having written The Artist's Way now almost 20 years ago, how, if at all, your ideas about creativity may have changed or evolved over time? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I'm happy to say that when I read The Artist's Way, I still think, Oh, that's true. Um, and I find that when I teach the artist's way, I don't feel like it's outdated. But I did do two other books uh, called Walking in This World and Finding Water, which are continuations of the artist's way. And they sort of represent how my thought has evolved. Uh, I think... Uh, the big thing that I want to mention is that when I did The Artist's Way, there were two basic tools, uh, morning pages and artist dates. And then in week 12, sort of as a PS, I said, by the way, it's a good idea to exercise. It helps. So now 20 years later, I realize that there should be a third tool, and that's walking and that when people walk, they integrate the ideas that they receive from the other two tools. It's interesting because here, as I mentioned, you have created so much in your own life and helped so many people. And, I mean, these three tools that you're mentioning, you know, morning pages, handwriting, longhand, three pages without censoring yourself, morning writing, taking yourself out on an artist's date once a week, and now this third tool going out for a walk and integrating. I mean, this is very, very simple 
in a sense, Julia. And what I'm getting at with my question is there's so many people who struggle with their creativity in millions of different ways, complain about it. This is the source of their angst, their confusion. And yet here you are, one of the leading teachers on what unblocks creativity. And what you're offering is actually quite simple, at least on the surface. I think that my tools are very simple. I sometimes say to myself, Julia, it's like they come to school with you and they go to kindergarten. But uh, I believe that having the tools be so simple is one reason why so many people work with them, Tammy. Uh, They have uh, a, a feeling almost of deja vu when they try the tools and they realize, oh, I used to journal. Oh, I used to go on expeditions. I go on long walks when I'm upset. They, there's a familiarity about the tools. Uh, and the fact that they're simple um, makes them more useful for people. I, I really can't stand it when people try and make creativity a very complicated, complex, difficult thing. I don't believe it is. Well, I think there's definitely an idea in our culture that if it's that simple, it's simplistic or lacking sophistication or not really going to take you all the way or something like that. I mean, how would you respond to that? I would say three million people have worked with the tools, and that must mean that they're not gullible. Strong response. Now, one of the metaphors you use, Julia, that I find really interesting, and maybe that's because I've loved the radio my whole life, is the human being as a type of radio that can receive transmissions. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, about what this metaphor of the radio and what it means to you. Well, I say that what we're trying to build is a radio kit and that with the morning pages you're sending, you're going, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, this is what I wish I had more of, this is what I wish I had less of, and you're sort of sending a a message out to the universe, tap, 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 tap. When you go on your artist dates, you have flicked the dial over to receive and to nurturing and to nourishment, and uh, to intuition, hunches, uh, inspirations. It's as though the radio kit, uh, the radio is now over receiving. Uh, So, and then when you go on your walks, you integrate what you've received from both your morning pages and from your artist dates. Now, I've also heard you, though, talk about receiving like a radio can receive messages or transmissions. And, and I'm curious if that has meaning for you, meaning, you know, in your own writing, do you ever have the sense that you're receiving messages that then come through and you're sort of fine-tuning a channel? Well, I'll tell you, I have a book called uh, Prayers to the Great Creator, and it's four prayer books that I've written that have been compiled into one volume. And I read it at night, and I find myself saying, who wrote this? 
You know, it's as, it definitely as though I received the writing uh, and uh, not as if I thought it up myself. Yeah, I'm curious about that. I mean, how much of your writing in general would you say, your 30-some-odd books, have that kind of quality for you, not just the prayer book, but overall in general? Well, I, I guess I would say that uh, in reading them over again, they, they all have a certain found quality to them where I read it and I think, who wrote that? Or, gee, that's nice writing. Um, I recently read a wonderful novel by a man named John Bowers. And the novel's called End of Story. Uh, and it's uh, a gay love affair. It's just a great novel. And it was so good that I read it twice. And then I thought, you'll never write as well as John writes. And then I thought, Julia, you're on dangerous ground comparing yourself and trying to compete. So you better cut that out. Maybe what you should do is read your own novel that was published two years ago and just see what you think of it. So I've been rereading my novel. I'm almost done, and I'm happy to say it holds up. Uh, So... uh, I I don't know about most writers, but I do know about me that I I feel like I have a a purer, higher self that writes. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm curious about. And what you do personally, in addition to morning pages, to clear the decks so that higher self can do the writing. Well... You know, when you say, what do you do in addition to morning pages? Yeah. Uh, You know, I've been doing morning pages for 25 years. That's a lot of morning pages. So I do do morning pages. I do go for walks. I, I do take artist dates. And when I am feeling stymied in my writing, I find if I use the basic tools, you know, I may find... Gee, you haven't been on an artist date in a while. You better go do that. And when I do that, when I use the basic tools, uh, it flows over into creative writing. Have you ever had a time in your life where you were blocked for a long time, like six months or a year or two years, something like that? Um, Well, I wrote... The Sound of Paper uh, during a period of drought. Uh, It it may sound funny to say I wrote something while I was blocked, uh, but I did. That does sound funny. I mean, I must say, I mean, you wrote something while you were blocked, so you weren't blocked, you were writing. Well, except I was experiencing myself as blocked. I, it was a struggle, and what I found was that uh, the the universe, uh, I was living in Taos, New Mexico, and it was a drought, and there were fires, and that was just how my creativity felt to me, like there was a drought, and there were fires burning, and I wasn't having a lush and verdant valley, 
But you've never gone through a period of your life where you were just not creating at all? You created, but you created through the drought, in this case that you're sharing. Well, I'd say right now, uh, I just finished a book called The Prosperous Heart, and it's going to come out in December. And uh, I had a devilish time writing the book. I I got the idea clear as a bell. I went to Joel my Potinos, my publisher at at Putnam, and said, I want to write a book about prosperity being a spiritual matter. And he said, oh, that sounds wonderful. And he hired me to write the book. Then when I sat down to write the book, I found I couldn't write it. And so I spent a year grappling with uh, why is it so difficult for me to write something so simple. And it it just was. Uh, and finally, I enlisted the help of Emma Lively. Uh, Emma has been my collaborator off and on for 12 years. And I said to Emma, do you see the book? And she said, I do. And so we set to work together, the two of us, on it. uh, And that's what finally yielded us a book. It's so interesting, Julia. I'm I'm grateful to you for sharing that story, because I certainly can imagine that some of our listeners might think, well, I'm sure having that kind of experience, you have an idea, you're all inspired, but then nothing comes out. Well, that doesn't happen to someone like Julia, not at this point in her career, not after... 30-plus books being written. She doesn't have that kind of experience. Well, I think it's important for people to know that I go through all of the same difficulties that they go through. I'm just more familiar with the difficulties. And then it's interesting that it was the introduction of another person, a collaborator, a friend, someone who could help you. That's what broke it through for you. Maybe you can say something about that. Well, I've had very good luck with collaboration in my career. Uh, When I was uh, in my 20s, I was married to Martin Scorsese, and we made movies together. Uh, I I worked on the scripts, and he would direct them, and it would come out wonderful. And uh, when, when I was in my 40s, I collaborated with my ex-husband. I I should say I married Marty out of collaborative feelings. Uh, And then in my 40s, I had a second marriage, also born out of collaboration, I think. Uh, So my muse may may be uh, romantic. I'm not sure about most people's muses. But mine usually has a romantic flair. There's a quote here that I thought it might be interesting to have you comment on, and it has to do with difficult periods in an artist's life. And here's the quote from you. All artists get discouraged. All artists have deep inner wells of self-pity into which we periodically dive All artists specialize in self-doubt. It is how we hone the creative imagination. 
I was curious about that. That's one of the ways that we hone our creative imagination? I think that when we go through periods of self-pity, we sort of catch ourselves up short and say, oh, look what you're doing. Uh, And when we say, this is what I'm doing, then we say, I'm going to stop doing it. And that's where the honing comes in. Um, I think, I think that if I have anything to offer as a teacher, it's compassion Mm. for the struggles that artists go through. Mm -hmm. I think when I read that quote from you, I had the thought, I hope there's a different way. Isn't there a different way? I'd love to hone my creative imagination without having to do that, go through deep inner wells of self-pity, specializing in self-doubt. So that was the thought I had, and I'm curious what you think well, about that. Well, I'm, I'm wishing you the best with that. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. <laughs> but I, I do feel that people uh, who set out to be creative tend to have uh, wells of doubt. And that's sort of what I teach them to to cope with. Uh, I teach them to say, you know, people come to me and they maybe want to be taught to be fearless. And uh, that's what you're talking about, I think. And uh, I find myself saying... No, you're going to stay fearful, but you're going to learn to work around the fear. Mm-hmm. Work around the fear, work through the fear. How would you explain that? Well, I would say you're going to feel the fear, and you're going to need to go forward anyway. And this is something that I think morning pages are very useful for, uh, they miniaturize your sensor. You know, you you start to write and your sensor says, oh, you're so petty. And you say to your sensor, thank you for sharing. And you keep right on writing. And you're, in effect, training your sensor to stand to one side while you create. Now, I know you've actually named your sensor, at least there's uh, one name, Nigel. I'm curious how that came to be, what was happening in your life that this name was given to your sensor, and also how that works for you, if it's useful to have a name and why. Well, I, I think it's a good idea to name your sensor because it begins to make your sensor into a cartoon character, uh, somebody that you can grapple with instead of the voice of doom from on high that's condemning you. Uh, So your censor becomes somewhat humorous. Um, Nigel, uh, I don't remember how I got the name Nigel. I think it just sort of came to me. Uh, I I think of him as a gay British designer. Mm. You know, a a very... uh, very haughty queen who has his aesthetics and mine will never measure up. 
Is there only one face of the sensor for you? Meaning, do you have other names for other ways the sensor sometimes manifests? No, I just have Nigel, and Nigel is plenty. <laughs> now, in thinking about Nigel, it triggers for me something that I've heard you speak about in terms of helping people with their perfectionism. And I have a quote here from you, whatever is worth doing is worth doing badly. It's kind of a humorous quote where you're telling people that their idea of perfectionism is actually one of the things that's getting in their way. And I wonder if you can speak to that some and how you help people who defend somehow their perfectionism as their high standards. Well, I think when people uh, come to study with me, very often uh, they are perfectionists who are unable to let themselves move forward. Uh, They have uh, what they think of as high standards, and they uh, are, are going to hang on to them or be damned. But by the time they get to week eight out of 12, uh, they have been dismantling their perfectionist with morning pages because there's no wrong way to do morning pages. So the perfectionist says, you're moody, and you say, all right, I'm moody. And there begins to be a degree of self-acceptance And when there's enough self-acceptance, there begins to be permission to do something, even if it's flawed. Now, what about the person who has a block about doing morning pages? They do it one time, they do it three times, four times, they're on a roll, and then suddenly some part of them, I don't know if you would call this the sensor or what you would call it, but steps in and is just like, forget it. You've got dishes to do, you've got to take the kids here. You've got 100 million other things you need to do. Forget it. Well, I guess I want to say that my tools are for people who want them. And so if somebody has a block against using a tool, uh, I just let them be. I don't try and persuade them to use the tool. Interesting. What part do you think that is in somebody that surfaces like that, like they have a longing, they want to use the tool, but then some other part of them is obstructionistic? Well, you know, it's their perfectionist acting up, for one thing. Uh, and it's it's a basic lie uh, that they think that the morning pages are going to take time. And they do. They take about 45 minutes. Uh and what happens is the morning pages win you windows of time all through your day. So you actually end up having more time for having made the committed 45 minutes. So I can tell people that, but I can't make them do morning pages. Yeah. But, you know, right now I have a class, I have about 20 people, and I would say... 17 out of them are doing 7 out of 7 on morning pages. And then I've got somebody who's doing 6, somebody who's doing 5, somebody who's doing 4. So uh, 
the people who are doing the lesser number of morning pages are tending to get less out of the course. But it's better than not doing them at all. Now, I want to circle back for a moment because you were describing Nigel, and I said, you know, do you have other faces or names? And you said, Nigel is enough. Come on. And I'm curious how your relationship with Nigel has changed and evolved over your years of relating to him as the censor. Well, I wish I could tell you that I had Nigel tamed. Uh, But what happens is as you get smarter and do more work, your censor gets smarter and does more work. So if you have one book, the censor says, well, you're a one-book wonder. And then if you try and commit a second book, the censor says, well, you're repeating yourself. Uh, and if you have three books, the censor says, well, aren't, aren't you a has-been? So the censor gets smarter uh, as you go along. And I have had a, a, I recently did a book called The Creative Life, which is essentially a creative diary of my life when I lived in New York. And uh, as I was writing it, Nigel kept saying, these sentences are too short and stubby. This is too intimate. This is, nobody's going to be interested by this. And I, I found myself listening to Nigel and believing Nigel. And I went so far as I took the whole book and I went down to visit Joel Fotinos, my publisher, and I said, Joel, I'm writing the most terrible book for you. And he said, well, let me hear a little bit of it. So I started reading it, and mysteriously, as I was reading it, it started to sound pretty good. And then I realized that Nigel was out to sabotage me. And uh, he he made me, uh, I, all, after all these years, I still believed him. He caught me off guard. I, I thought, this book is not any good. And uh, the truth is, the book turned out fine. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that. I think it's kind of like as you have grown in your own creative, liberated force that Nigel's gotten stronger and stronger. I mean, it almost sounds like a computer program or something that keeps adapting. Well, I think of Nigel as being like Voldemort from Harry Potter. Yeah. So, you know, in listening to you, I can feel how this works inside. I'm curious, do you have a kind of psychological explanation for it, or is that not important to you? A psychological explanation for Nigel? Yeah, like sort of how this sensor is working with this other part of us that sort of has our own best interest at heart versus this part that's trying to take us down. How it is we're built like this. Well, I think it's enough to just tell people, name your censor. And people don't say, what? <laughs> they immediately know, oh, my censor. Uh, and it's an experience that's common, uh, and it's negative. Uh, and 
so when you start telling people name your sensor, cartoon your sensor, uh, give your sensor uh, a run for his money by saying simply thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. And does that work to say thank you for sharing? Does Nigel then retreat? It it actually does work uh, because you've trained your sensor to stand to one side by by denying it rights during your morning pages, and that allows you to go forward, uh, stepping onto a stage, uh, put, putting. Uh, your thoughts onto a blank page, uh, stepping up to the easel. Uh, I I think that everyone has a Nigel, uh, and I have some experience with this. Uh, you know, when we uh, when we talk about creativity, we often talk about it in terms that are sort of mythic. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, Steven Spielberg, we we hear uh, his name, and then we think, Steven got his first movie camera at age eight. And we hear this sort of uh, mythic story. And yet, uh, I was once in a hotel room with, Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma, they were sort of babysitting me so I didn't date while Marty was in in France. Uh, he was he had put them in charge of me, so to speak, mm-hmm. and they were my babysitters. And uh, we we're sitting in this hotel room, and Steven Spielberg says to Brian De Palma, "I've been trying to make a movie about extraterrestrials." and I can't get anybody interested in it. And I really think I should just give up. And Brian said, Stephen, I've been listening to you for years, and when you talk about extraterrestrials, you sort of light up. Uh, I don't think you should give up. And, of course, he didn't give up, and he made Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. And... uh, the thing is, we we don't often hear the story. Steven Spielberg was tempted to give up. Steven Spielberg had a dark night of the soul. Steven Spielberg had doubt. Instead, we hear uh, stories that tell us that there's such a thing as real artists, and they are people who we are told are fearless in pursuit of their art. And there's really no such thing. I'm thinking of something now that I read in preparing for this conversation on your new website, juliacameronlive.com. Just because it might take us a long time to start a project doesn't mean that that project is not going to be wildly successful. That sometimes we have an idea. I haven't done it yet. I haven't done it yet. It means it's never going to happen, never going to work. But that's not really the case necessarily. Yes, I think uh, that we we need to look at the issue of procrastination, uh, and uh, we tend to call procrastination laziness, and it's actually usually a fear. And when we face the fear directly, 
and say, I want to do this, but I'm terrified to do this, uh, then we begin to be able to have the fear and move into the steps necessary on the project. So we have the fear. It doesn't go away. Uh, and we we work with it. Well, let's talk more about how that works, meaning I identify that I have a fear. Maybe I'm you know afraid that it's not going to be well-received or I'm afraid it's not going to be as good as I kind of feel into. I think it could be, but the actual execution, it's not going to be then what do I do next? Now I've identified the fear. Okay, that's the reason I'm procrastinating. I'm afraid. That's the truth. Well, I have a tool that's in the artist's way. It's called blasting through blocks. And what it asks you to do is to get a sheet of paper and to write down specifically all of the fears and all of the angers you have in relationship to a project you're stalled on. So you put them on the page, and then you you pick a believing mirror, someone who uh, has your best interests at heart, uh, and you explain to them, I want to read you this list. And then you share your fears and your angers with another person. Uh, and normally what that does is sort of detox them. You're, you're sort of debriefing yourself. Uh, and you, you then turn back to the project, and normally you find you can now take a step. Mm-hmm. So blasting through blocks is a very simple tool. Like like all of my tools, Tammy. You know, simple very often works. Julia, there's something I'm curious about. I'm, I'm often curious about this when it comes to people who have really dedicated their life to a certain path. And in this case, I'd say you've dedicated your life to the path of the creative force. First of all, is that true, what I'm saying? You've dedicated your life to the path of creativity, to the creative force. Would you say that? Uh, or how yes, would you put it? Yes, I think it? so. Uh, I think when I'm creating, I'm pretty happy. Uh, and when I'm not creating, I'm uh, pretty unhappy. And so I tend to steer myself toward creativity. And so then the thing I'm curious about is, after having made this the focus of your life now for many, many decades, do you ever have the sense that oh, you know, maybe I would be more fulfilled if I had done this or had done that. Or I really missed out on this oh, other thing. I have a good one on this. Uh, I, I directed a feature film called God's Will. And uh, it, it had its sound stolen, and so I had to loop the entire film. I looped the entire film, and it got into festivals in Europe and was very well received. But I was so discouraged uh, by its not doing well in America, where, of course, it couldn't because we don't like looped films. Uh, I, I just sort of buried the film. I sort of took my loss and said... Uh, oh, it's too bad, and 
I I found myself uh, discouraged, and what happened was that simultaneous to the to the failure, if you will, of God's will, uh, came the success of the artist's way, and so I was steered into writing books instead of directing movies, and I still think, oh, gee. I would have had more fun if I had stuck to the movie path. Uh, and there's a, a woman named Nora Ephron uh, who has directed a number of films. Yeah. And when I go see Nora's films, I'm jealous. I think, oh boy, I really wish I were doing that. So... Uh, I've dedicated my life to creativity and people would say toward helping other people with their creativity, but I still have that niggling thought of, gee, I wish I were still directing. And when you have that thought, that becomes the theme of your morning pages and you work with it in some way? or Yeah, it becomes the theme of my morning pages. Uh, it becomes the theme of my evening pages. Okay. Uh, it, and uh, I just find myself thinking, oh, good for good for Nora, too bad for me. And then, as you mentioned, though, when you're creating, you're at your happiest. Your compass is such that then you move towards creating more, creating more, creating more in the path you're on? That's right. Um, I, I, for example, find myself wanting to write fiction uh, and wanting to write romantic comedies. And so I am putting in book form maybe something that Nora would have put on the screen. Well, this, I think, is related in a certain sense. In the final chapter of The Artist's Way, you talk about recovering a sense of faith and the relationship between creativity and faith. And I was curious to hear about this, and specifically, what is your faith? What do you have faith in? Well, first of all, any act of creativity is an act of faith. Uh, if you want to write, uh, you have to have faith when you you put something on the page. Uh, if you're going to step onto a stage, you have to have faith enough to step onto the stage. So uh, creativity is always an act of faith. And as you strengthen your faith, uh, which I do by reading Ernest Holmes, uh, you strengthen your faith uh, it strengthens your ability to create. Now, that's interesting. You said you strengthen your faith by reading Ernest Holmes. Can you tell me about that? Well, Ernest Holmes founded a religion called the Science of Mind. Uh, he wrote a book called Science of Mind, which I find almost incomprehensible. Uh, but he wrote many simpler books, uh, among them uh, a book called Creative Ideas. And Creative Ideas is sort of the bedrock uh, of, 
of my belief system and another book called This Thing Called You. And so at night uh, when I'm in bed, I I read like two or three prayers from the prayer book that I wrote. And then I read two or three prayers from Ernest Holmes. And I find myself feeling buoyed up and optimistic. Now when you say that Ernest Holmes and his exposition of ideas is the core of your, you know, faith or belief system. Can you tell me what that is? What those principles are? Well, uh, the principle is that there's one mind, uh, one creative power, that we are all in it and of it, that when we want to extend ourselves creatively, uh, that's actually the the force uh, of the divine mind wanting to extend itself. So it's an answer. You know, a lot of times people say, "I want to, I want to write a novel, but I'm afraid it's just my ego." And Ernest Holmes would say, "If you want to write a novel, that's divine mind." yearning to express itself. So it it takes away that whole issue of it's just my ego. Beautiful. Now there's one other quote that I read of yours that I'd love for you to comment on, and here it goes. In order to grow as artists, we must be willing to risk we cannot continue indefinitely to replicate the successes of our past. Great careers are characterized by great risks. And I'm curious to know what, if any, the risks are that you might currently be taking in your life. If you identify, oh, that's a risk I'm taking. Aha. Right now, uh, I'm I'm in a reading period. Uh, I'm as I said I'm reading Mozart's Ghost. Uh, I'm reading John Bauer's book End of Story. I'm reading uh, Tim Farrington's book The Monk Upstairs. And uh, what I'm out to do is to entertain myself right now. Uh, so that I'm not just staring at the walls going, why can't I think of something to write? I'm instead looking for things that are delicious. Uh, and uh, I'm casting about for what do I want to do next. And I have uh, I have three musicals that need some work. Uh, and uh, I'm hoping that I can lure Emma back to work on them a little bit with me. Uh, and I have just gotten my piano tuned, which means that I'm committing to music again. Uh, and I feel like, uh, you know, if people go to Julia Cameron Live, they can hear music from from all three of my shows. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense to me to be in a period of 
delicious reading. I'm curious, though, when you think of this idea of taking risks, even if you look back over the last several years, what would you identify as something that you did that you said, well, that was risky? I wrote a memoir. That sounds risky. And it was risky. And uh, in the memoir, I talked about uh, the difficulties that I have had, uh, which uh, I, I have had three nervous breakdowns and been hospitalized. And the memoir talks about that. And uh, what I found when I published the memoir was that the world was divided between those people who thought it was great that I was talking about everything and those people who just didn't want to know. Uh, and so the the book was very unevenly reviewed uh, Half of the people were offended that I had stepped down off the pedestal, uh, and half of the people were delighted that I had. Hmm. Well, I want to acknowledge you, Julia, and I'm clearly one of the people who applaud your willingness to be transparent and open about your life. I think it's so useful for people not to have their projections, but to know the real truth about people they admire. I think it's helpful. It humanizes all of us. So I want to I, applaud you. I hope it's helpful. In the memoir, I haven't read it, and it's you know likely many of our listeners haven't. What is it that you came to when you described these nervous breakdowns in terms of how it brought understanding or insight into your life? What was your context for those experiences, looking back at them? Well, I think the thing that that comes through in the memoir is that uh, I kept on working. You know, I didn't have a nervous breakdown and say, well, that's it. Uh, I had a nervous breakdown, and I wrote about a nervous breakdown. And I went uh, sort of... Uh, I had a... F- friend of mine say to me, he just read the memoir and he thought I was like an energizer bunny, that I just kept on going. And I think there's some truth to that. And I think that 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 is perhaps inspirational for people uh, to uh, read that I didn't stop creating. It is inspirational. I think it's very, very meaningful for people to hear that. As we uh, come to the end of our conversation, this is a little bit of an unusual request, but I'm curious if you would be willing to leave our listeners with some kind of blessing related to their creative life. Uh, well, I think uh, that there's a, a song that I sing, uh, which goes, um, time is like a river, we wash our bones like stones, time is like a river, we wash our bones like stones, 
Time is not the answer. Time is not the quest. Time is where we journey while we learn the rest. Washing in the river of the self. So when I teach, I have my class sing that song, and it seems to get people grounded uh, and willing to go forward with taking risks. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Julia. Thanks for your honesty, your heart, your courage, your transparency. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. It's, It's wonderful to get a chance to talk to you again. I've been speaking with Julia Cameron. She's created a new online learning website, an online community called juliacameronlive.com. Julia has also created several audio programs with Sounds True, including an audio program, Reflections on the Artist's Way, a teaching program on many of the key themes that are introduced in the Artist's Way, and a program that's a collaboration with author and teacher Natalie Goldberg called The Writing Life, an audio program that's filled with ideas and inspiration for anyone who wants to write. Julia, thanks again. Thanks for being with us. Well, you're welcome, Tammy. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.